Well, this session is going to be discussing the subject of denial at the psychological impact of the dimmer system. And we'll start with looking at uh, the effect of denial as a manifestation uh, for, for dhimmis, uh, people who've lived under or are living under Islam, and the way their psychology is affected. And then we'll look at denial as a feature of the abuser, that is, of Muslims, and their take on, on the history of the, the dhimmis and their situation under Islam. And we'll also look at what I call the dimitude of the West, which is the imposition of the worldview of denial and of submission upon uh, Western nations, even though they haven't been defeated. So you have a, uh, an adoption of a kind of dimmy mentality uh, or a surrendered mentality in the West. And uh, that's also connected with the issue of denial. <clears throat> Over the years, uh, I've uh, had the opportunity to minister a number of times to abused women. Uh, it's arisen in, in, in pastoral ministry. And there's certain characteristics that those who suffer uh, abuse in a relationship tend to take on. Um, one is that they tend to blame themselves and uh, will uh, not be willing to acknowledge uh, the danger and the cause uh, to their problems being in their abuser. Uh, so an abused person will often say um, that, they, that what happened was their fault, um, or they'll say, he really does love me, but... Uh, or they'll blame other circumstances around them. And this can be a very, very powerful uh, driver in an abused person. So they'll be very unwilling to call the police or to seek an intervention. Even when their lives are at risk, they might be unwilling uh, to seek that help. Sometimes uh, an abused woman will finally acknowledge the problem and turn to the police when she realizes her children's lives are at risk, for example, and not just her own. And indeed, it can be quite terrifying for an abused person to acknowledge the truth, that the, the fault is in the abuser. I remember well speaking uh, with one person. Uh, she'd been abused in, in a relationship. Uh, it was in, in the church, in fact. Uh, they were both members of the church, and she'd been blaming everybody else, the elders, uh, herself, uh, circumstances. And she said that the point where she realized and was able to say it was, it was her husband's fault, the man's fault, was the most terrifying moment in her life. And she said if she'd had a chainsaw at that time, she would have cut herself to pieces. That's how, how difficult it was to accept to herself that he was, he was the problem. You see, if you can blame yourself, you feel some sense of control. Uh, you can do something about it. But if it's actually the abuser's fault, uh, you're helpless. You have no solution except to get out of the relationship. So it's, it's a very difficult and sad situation. One of the hardest things in helping abused women is to get them to the point where they are willing to fight for their own freedom. And to do that, they have to acknowledge the truth. Uh, it's a very amazing, really, how Satan can impose lies on people who are victims of abuse. In fact, studies have been done of uh, abuse, early abuse that occurs in the first few years of a child's life and uh, a phenomenon is very well known and, and well studied now called associative di identity disorder. Um, this is where a, um, a small child who's subject to abuse, usually by uh, someone close to them like their parents, might be sexual, physical or ritual abuse in certain cults, uh, develops a fragmented personality. Um, people used to speak of multiple personalities, which is rather misleading, but the, the technical term now that the American Psychological Association uses associated um, dissociative identity disorder. And basically, uh, uh, somehow, the young person splits their personality into different alters, as they're called, 
And um, usually these, these different parts of the person uh, don't share consciousness or only partly share consciousness. And the value of that is that there can be a particular part of the person that remembers the abuse and is present when the abuse is happening. Um, and then the, another part of the person which does everyday life doesn't have to know that those things are happening. And that enables denial to be maintained uh, so that your everyday part of the person that's living everyday life doesn't have to remember uh, the things that are happening at night or when she's taken out to be part of a, uh, a witchcraft event or something like that and the, the awful things that are happening to her. And having worked with uh, quite a number of survivors of this kind of abuse, um, they will go to extraordinary lengths to maintain that denial, that is to, to keep the protective walls uh, between the different parts of their personality so they don't have to face up with their whole consciousness uh, to the realisation that their father or their mother or their friend or, or someone uh, close to them has abused them. It's actually even more likely to have this sort of fragmentation if your primary care providers, the ones that you're dependent upon for your safety and your care, are the ones that are abusing you. Uh, because then you have to you have to make have to create that split. Otherwise, life would be intolerable. You just couldn't cope emotionally with living uh, with someone who's meant to love you and indeed you want to love, but is actually the source of so much pain for you. So uh, it, it, it has to be recognised that in abusive situations where people are bound by threats of death and violence, and the reality of it, um, denial can be a very very powerful force, and so. So powerful, in fact, that people will change their whole uh, cognitive structure in order to accommodate it. I'd like to uh, uh, explore this issue of denial and the survival strategy, really, of denial and uh, look at how it applies to the Dhimmi syndrome, to what it means to live as a Dhimmi, and also understand that um, abusers also participate in the denial. They will impose the lies upon the abused person, they will deliberately school uh, the, the, the abused person in their own guilt. Uh, typically, for example, uh, people that abuse children sexually will tell the children that it's their fault, uh, that they are the ones that have caused the relationship to happen and are responsible for it. They'll, they'll train them to feel guilty. They'll say, no one will believe you and, and things like that. So we'll look also at the Muslim contribution to denial and we'll explore also what's been happening with some scholarship around this subject. And, this is a very important thing to understand why it is that in many cases people and leaders in Western countries seem to be so willing to concede uh, things to Islam that they shouldn't be conceding. I explained in a previous talk that um, uh, the Dhimmi condition has a number of key psychological characteristics and one of them is gratitude. You should, you should feel grateful to your persecutor. That the function of that gratitude is to protect you from the, the truth uh, and also put you in a position where you'll serve. And also humility, you feel quite bad about yourself. Again, that puts you in a weakened position uh, and you're unable to resist. Um, another characteristic of the Dhimmi syndrome or the Dhimmi mentality is what's been called the mimetic tendency. Um, a mime is, uh, is imitating something. Um, you're imitating something. So you uh, uh, non-Muslims who live under the, 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 the Dhimmi system want to become like Muslims. They try and make themselves as much like Muslims as possible so they'll, they'll merge into the background and not stand out. On the other hand, Islamic law 
keep, kept on inventing new ways to make sure that dhimmis were very clearly, not, very clearly recognisable as not Muslims. The bell around the neck in the bath or different coloured shoes or different clothing and so on. So there's this tension between the victim who just wants to identify with the abuser and be like the abuser so he doesn't stand out and the abuser is determined to keep the victim uh, separate and identifiable in every way. And sometimes the, the abused person will collude with and support the agenda of the abuser. So they're the best defender of the agenda of the abuser. And uh, that's quite a, um, a confusing thing if you're encountering it and don't understand the dynamics. So, for example, often a battered wife will defend their husband, uh, will even lie to defend their husband to protect them, and they'll be sympathetic, and that's the party they will side with. Um, and this is a characteristic of uh, uh, people that are abused in... Uh, uh, in, in ritual context and sexual abuse as well, they can often be very, very uh, loyal and determined to defend their abuser. Uh, sometimes, uh, well, one example or, or implication of this is called the Stockholm Syndrome, where people have been kidnapped and they end up uh, identifying with the kidnappers and maybe converting to the kidnappers' religion. There have been a number of cases where people have been taken as hostage by Islamic radicals and have ended up becoming Muslims and even radical Muslims. Uh, through that process. So that's an example of this tendency to try and identify with someone that has power over you. I'd like to give you an example of uh, identifying with the abuser um, by looking at an interview that took place in Australia uh, between Rachel Cohn, who works for the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Commission, and um, an Iranian-born Jew called uh, Nasser um, Khalili. And uh, he is a, uh, a very wealthy uh, man. He'd inherited quite a fortune, and uh, I believe has developed it further, and also is the owner of a, um, an amazing art exhibition uh, or art collection, the greatest uh, uh, collection of Islamic art in private hands in the world today. And he was interviewed on the ABC and was asked a number of questions, and these are some of the things he said. He was asked whether um, his collection of Islamic art, which was being presented in Australia, is sort of a soft sell of Islam as well to the Australian community, whether this, this collection might help Muslims understand that Jews are not inferior, because he was presenting this collection. And Khalili said, I don't think there's a question of the Jews being inferior. I don't think that has ever crossed any Muslim's mind. It's an amazing statement, because in fact there's an enormous amount of evidence that many Muslims... Uh, think of Jews as inferior. So how could someone who's grown up or lived in Iran and is aware of things happening in the world ever say such a thing, deny that there's a problem of some Muslims thinking Jews are inferior? In fact, it's particularly poignant because Iranian treatment of Jews were, was particularly abusive. The Persians uh, treated the Jews before 1925 in a very harsh way, and the 19th century was just littered with pogroms and forced conversions of Jews throughout the whole country. In Shiite textbooks, Jews are routinely named along with dogs, corpses, and urine as one of the things whose uh, contact makes a Muslim unclean. There's a reference there in the Quran to this idea of uncleanliness in, in uh, chapter 9, verse 28. It was only, in fact, the rise of Reza Pahlavi to power in Iran in 1925 and the modernizing of Persia that made conditions more bearable for the Jews, and that would have affected Khalili's childhood and youth in Iran. But even in 1977, an anthropologist, uh, Loeb, 
commented uh, about Iran that most Jews express the belief that it's only the personal strength and goodwill of the Shah that protects them and that and God's intervention on their behalf. Anyway, Khalili went on to state on this interview, he said virtually a third of the Quran, Surat al-Baqarah, is in the praise of the other two religions, Judaism and Christianity. He said, I don't think that's a question at all, that is whether Jews are thought to be inferior by Muslims. I think the problem is ignorance among people, and I can say on your program that I believe the biggest and the real weapon of mass destruction is ignorance. If people try to understand their culture, their religion, their way of life, they start to respect each other. I think Maimonides' role was exactly that. Maimonides was a, a very famous Jewish scholar who's regarded as one of the great founders and formers of, uh, of uh, Judaism as it's practiced today in the middle, or standardizers of the, of the Jewish belief. Now, what's amazing about this statement that Khalili made is it's full of falsehoods. And all the falsehoods favor Islam. They present Islam more favorably. For example, uh, chapter 2 is 7% of the Quran, not a third. Well, you might think that's not such a big deal. It's just a matter of mathematics. But it's a huge exaggeration to say it's a third. It is the longest chapter, but it's by no means a third. And also, what's really amazing is that this chapter, far from being in praise of Judaism and Christianity, he says, is basically a long diatribe against the Jews of Medina. It's a long litany of retorts that Muhammad had to answers that Muhammad gave to the Jews in Medina. There's a verse that says that Allah changed Jews into apes. There's one that says that Islam is the religion of Abraham in contrast with Judaism and Christianity. Another that says that Jews forged their scriptures and are liars. There are scores of anti-Jewish statements in that chapter that Khalili claimed is in praise of Judaism and the Jews. There is one verse that's positive about Jews in the long chapter. Um, and it says basically the Jews that are good and that believe, they, 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 they should do well with Allah. So that's all it says. But really, it's, it's the worst chapter in the Quran in a very anti-Semitic text. So that's amazing. Why would he say such a thing? It's also wrong to say that dispelling ignorance will necessarily lead to respect. Sometimes if you, if you dispel ignorance, you actually feel less happy about something. If you learn more about it, then you have good reason to reject it. Familiarity with Muhammad uh, doesn't necessarily make you like him more. And um, it was also quite shocking that he said Maimonides, one of the greatest Jewish writers of the Middle Ages, had the role of re promoting respect through understanding of Islam. Actually, this same person was forcibly converted in Andalusia and had to flee the persecutions to Egypt, pretending to be a Muslim. And he later wrote to the Jews of Yemen about this in his comment about Islam. He said, On account of our sins, God has cast us into the midst of this people, the nation of Ishmael, who persecute us severely and devise ways to harm us and to debase us. No nation has ever done more harm to Israel, that is, than the Muslims. None has matched it in debasing and humiliating us. None has been able to reduce us as they have. The more we suffer and choose to conciliate them, the more they choose to act belligerently towards us. So this is this scholar who is supposed to have had the role of dispelling ignorance in order to help people respect each other more. In fact, his experience of Islam led him to believe there was nothing as bad for Judaism as Islam. Now, Khalili's fantastic claims, amazing things, are predictable because positive regard for Islam is compulsory for dhimmis, and he was formed as a young person in Iran. Even highly cultured and intelligent people will take on the roles of being apologists for Islam, of defending Islam, 
Dhimmis are supposed to praise Islam. And that's why people who stand up for religious freedom in Muslim countries are often attacked by Christians in those countries because it threatens them if you criticize Islam. So this is the, 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 the mimetic tendency, wanting to become like a Muslim, to support Muslims, to stand up for Muslims and promote the Muslim cause. Actually, sometimes the, the dhimmi condition has the effect of setting one dhimmi group against another. If only we can blame the others more, then we'll feel safer. The protocols of the elders of Zion, an anti-Semitic text from the 19th century, were first translated into Arabic by Christians in the Middle East. Because you see, if the Jews only hate, are hated more by the Muslims, then the Christians will feel safe. So it's, uh, it's, very, it's very, very uh, destructive psychologically, uh, these dynamics. Another manifestation of the mimetic tendency, the desire to sort of disappear and become like Muslims and identify them, is a movement known as the Arab nationalism or the pan-Arabist movement, which was first invented by Christians in the late 19th century. And uh, this was a movement that was an attempt to create a, a broadly-based, multicultural, um, Arab secular identity that would include many countries in the Middle East, uh, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, and Christians and Muslims would be forged into one nation. Syrian Christians who'd been um, traumatized by the Armenian and the Assyrian uh, massacres and genocides committed themselves to this doctrine of an Arab nation. And they were very, very dedicated to promote the, 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 how wonderful it would be uh, for, uh, for people to have their primary identity as being Arabs instead of, for example, being dhimmis in, in a Muslim society. The problem with the Arabist movement is that it undermined the distinctive identity of the Christian communities and actually eventually threatens their existence because Arab identity in, in, by this time in history has been completely taken over by Islam. If you have an Arabic festival, for example, uh, in a city like Los Angeles, you will find it will be organized and run by Muslims, even though perhaps a, a, you know, half or a large number of the, of the Arabic speakers in the area will be Christians. So what's happened is that Muslims have taken over that Arab nationalistic identity altogether. And the Christians have been marginalized by that, have been pushed out by it. But it was driven by this mimetic desire that is to be as, as like Muslims as possible. That was always prevented by the Dhimmi system, but when uh, Europeans came in and the Dhimmi system was freed up a bit, uh, the Christians kind of jumped in to be as similar to Muslims as possible. And you'll sometimes find some Middle Eastern Christians and even scholars who seem to devote their life, their, their scholarly life, to promoting the cause of Islam. A good example is Professor Edward Said. He was formerly professor at Columbia University, a Middle Eastern Christian by birth, and his book Orientalism has had an enormous influence. Uh, Ibn Warak said it has a totally pernicious influence on the ability of the West to criticize Islam. Because Edward Said, what he did is he labeled the label, he put the label of racism against Western scholars and their studies of Islam, and he intimidated a lot of people into silence. He did a great job for the, the Islamist cause as a Christian, demonizing the West and encouraged, really, Islamic fundamentalists. So he's a good example. Um, one uh, person called him a Janissary. Uh, these were the, the, the children that were taken by the Turks and uh, Christians and forcibly converted to Islam and used as slave soldiers. So that can be one manifestation of this mimetic tendency. There is also a concealment, active concealment. Um, you could call this the silence of the dhimmis. 
Under Islamic law, uh, non-Muslims are forbidden from criticizing Islam. The me testimony is also prohibited in, or it's, not, it's disallowed in, in Islamic courts. It's never permitted for the dhimmis to expose or analyse their own plight. Uh, one Dutch scholar thinking of doing a PhD was visiting Egypt and he, he spoke to a Coptic bishop and said, I'd like to write on Coptic writings about Islam. You've lived under Islam for a thousand years. And what has the Coptic church written about Islam? And um, he thought this would be a great subject for a PhD. And the Coptic bishop looked at him and said, there are no such writings. Uh, Non-Muslims are not allowed to critique Islam. It's happening now, you know, uh, with people like uh, Father Boutros Sakaria, but that's a very new phenomenon. It's a different environment. God is doing a great thing. Uh, but the traditional view is that you're not allowed to ask questions, you're not allowed to teach your children about the Quran in the, in the Pact of Umar. And if there was criticism, it was regarded as a pact violation with all the terrible consequences that we've discussed. Now, one of the effects of this silencing of the dhimmis is the concealment of dhimmi history because you can't describe the history accurately without acknowledging the role of Islam. So a silence goes upon these groups that they have they become peoples without history. And uh, there's a suppression of their testimony. This is what uh, Batyor called mutilated speech and rejected testimony. And it's transposed from the individual to the group and perpetuated through time. And by effacing history, you also erase people's human rights because human rights are based on historical consciousness and awareness. Sometimes Muslims have complained at how, Christians, how silent Christians can be. The Muslim Palestinian writer, Abd al-Nasr al-Najjar, uh, complained um, about the confiscation of Christian lands in Bethlehem and elsewhere, the appropriation of property. He said, Christians are silent so as not to attract attention. In fact, he said, if they do speak up, they're subjected to death threats. A very interesting uh, example of this silencing, self-silencing, is a book by Abe Atta, who's a Palestinian Christian, now working as an academic in Australia, and he published a study called Intermarriage Between Christians and Muslims. Now, what you really need to know about intermarriage between Palestinian Christians and Muslims is that in 96% of cases, it's Christian women marrying Muslim men. Because that fits with the Dhimma system. So the Dhimma still applies, even in, amongst Palestinians, in that sense. The children are raised as Muslims, and more often than not, the wives convert to Islam. He calls these intermarriage. And it's all determined by the Sharia. But what's really amazing about his book is that you can, it's almost impossible to find out from the book that this is the case. He refers to intermarriage throughout the book as if it was quite an equal phenomenon on both sides. Only in the final few pages, there's an acknowledgement of the religious imbalance. And actually, amazingly, in the chart, which d depicts the percentages, there's a typo in the chart. So it says that 96% of the marriages are between uh, Muslim women and Christian men. So the, the chart is, in fact, faulty. So if you didn't know your facts and you're using the source, you can never find out that in fact the pattern of marriages uh, between um, uh, Muslims and Christians, uh, uh, Palestinians, is, is shaped by the Dhimma. And he's a clever man, he's a scholar, he's a Christian himself. The whole book is an exercise in denial. So it's a very sad when you counter those, but these, these, these uh, testimonies, uh, the silenced, mutilated testimony, is very effective because people in the West pay attention 
to Christians from the Middle East. They, they are, they, they, Edward's sight was effective because he was a Christian. People listen to Abata because he's a Christian. They think his testimony must be, must be significant. Clergy, Dimi clergy, are notorious uh, for practicing denial and silencing protest. The very interesting study by Justice Reed Viner of the deteriorating human rights situation of Christians in the Palestinian Authority. And he, uh, he said there's a, there's a widespread distrust of uh, religious leaders amongst Palestinian Christians. He said they obfuscate the situation as it affects their constituents, so they confuse the truth in the way they lead the community. Justice Viner said um, that one Christian man uh, reported to him, he said, our leaders are liars. They tell the newspapers that everything is okay, but when Christians go to the market, they're afraid to wear crosses. Now, Viner develops, uh, identifies a number of reasons for this denial, which uh, from his interviews, he said one is fear and intimidation. One Palestinian a Christian woman said, we're afraid, they have knives and guns, they can do whatever they want, they can kill you just for speaking badly about them. And the other, he says, is the identification with the abuser. He said a Christian cleric that he spoke to, a minister, compared the behaviour of Christian dimmies, Palestinian Christians, to that of battered wives and children who continue to defend and even identify with their tormentor as the abuse continues. So there's this vicious cycle where the Dhimmis are eager to placate the Muslims and afraid if they don't. And that's why Palestinian Christians will identify strongly with the nationalist uh, aspirations of the jihadis, of the, of, the, of the Muslim radicals amongst the Palestinians. And also they'll join in the anti-Israel rhetoric. This also causes them to deny the persecution of their own people. For example, Father Labib Koptal, uh, who's a la- from the Latin Church in Jerusalem, urged fellow Christians amongst the Palestinians to refuse the propaganda that wants to prove that there was any persecution um, uh, uh, of Christians by Muslims. She's, he said this is mere propaganda against Islam, a cold war against our Muslim brothers that only benefits the Zionists of Israel. So these are the displays of devotion uh, to the Ummah by the Christians. In another example, the Egyptian writer, a Muslim writer, uh, Ahmad al-Aswani, lamented the increase of attacks on Copts, which is becoming a huge problem in Egypt these days. He said it's often egged on by Islamic leader, and he held Christian clergy, clergy partly responsible. And this is what he says about what happens after each attack on Christians in Egypt. He said, of course, the usual Coptic notables deny any suspicion of sectarianism and affirm national unity, and the sheikh and the priest embrace. One saddening thing is some prominent Copts voluntarily deny any suspicion that sectarianism is fueling recent events even before the truth becomes known. I do not know whether they're aware that their words increase the suffering and will fail to end this series of incidents. Why don't they use their media presence to defend their people, the Copts, and to urge the enactment of laws to protect, to prevent, to prohibit what's happening and to purge the educational system and media of the explosive minds of sedition, discrimination and incitement. 
What is happening is an attempt, he said, to terrorize Egypt's Copts and to force them either to emigrate from their homeland once and for all or to convert to Islam to protect themselves and their families from harm and to protect their property from the confiscation mentioned by many Islamic publications. So he's saying many Islamic publications in Egypt are urging the confiscation of Coptic property. It causes me regret, he said, that an, as an Egyptian, it makes my heart bleed to see this farce endlessly repeated. Lives and property are taken with impunity and clearly with the collusion from the authorities and with no fear of effective response, with the confidence that, as always, the matter will end with beard kissing and forgetting. The beard kissing is the Muslim cleric and the Christian cleric meeting and they all have big beards and they kiss each other and they tell each other that everything is fine. Sometimes quite prominent leaders amongst Christians in the Middle East seem to take on the role, their whole function in life is to promote positive regard for the Muslim cause and to conceal uh, the persecutions that their people are suffering. Often these leaders are given special access to media and other opportunities by the Palestinian authorities and they're allowed to move freely and given privileges and it makes it very difficult for the West to understand what's happening. This is the silence of the dhimmis. It's not a new phenomenon. It's been going on for a, a very, very long time. And it's one of the reasons why this subject that I'm outlaying in these lectures of the problem of the dhimmah and the spiritual impact of the dhimmah is so difficult to study and engage with. The West, of course, Christians in the West assume that Christians on the ground are often uh, good uh, uh, witnesses to what's happening to them, but they aren't always. A battered woman is not always the best uh, evidence or, or, or the, the best... A battered woman is not always the best person to ask about her abuse. Well, this weakens the West because in understanding Islam, we are deceived uh, by the testimony of the victims. We're also being taught to feel guilty in lots of ways, so Christians in the West remain silent as well, and they don't engage with this, these issues. I'm reminded that that statement that the great Jewish scholar, uh, Maimonides, said uh, when he announced that the more we suffer and choose to conciliate them, the more they choose to act belligerently towards us. And what that means is that uh, if you try and identify with the Muslims and do what they want and serve them by by proclaiming that their cause is excellent and everything, in fact, the outcome of that will be uh, more and more destruction of your community. And it's very sad what's been happening in the Middle East because the outcome of the Arabist movement and all the collusion and support that's being given uh, to the jihadist cause by Christians will be the destruction of those very Christian communities that are giving that support. So you have the denial of the victims. It's something that uh, really we need to have compassion for them. It's, uh, it's a, it's a denial that needs to be respected in a sense because it's a survival strategy. The people that have held their faith over a long period of time and managed to do so, despite enormous pressure. But it's also deplorable because it's not truth. And you can't really solve issues and find proper solutions to life's problems if, if it's based on deception. But there's another problem and that's denial from the Muslim community because the abusers also deny the past. And there's a very confusing range of different voices that come from Muslims about what it was really like uh, living under a Dhimmi system. I want to run through a number of falsehoods or lies that are told about the Dhimmi situation and then just give you a, a response to explain what's behind that and why it's not true. 
There's a claim that's often put forward by Muslims that the jizya tax was a tax like any other tax. Of course, that's not true. It was a discriminatory tax. It was applied in a humiliating manner, and it was a payment to redeem your head for a year. It's not just like other taxes. Sometimes it's claimed that the jizya tax was an exemption from paying the zakat, which Muslims have to pay. And that's very misleading. It relies on the fact that Muslims did indeed have to pay this, this tax and the jizya was paid by non-Muslims, but they weren't equivalent. It's very clear that zakat was much less and um, it doesn't have this function of saving your life, paying for your life each year. Sometimes it's claimed that the jizya was a light tax, even less than the tax that the Muslims had to pay. In fact, that's not true. It was a very heavy tax and people would enslave themselves or flee or run away because they couldn't pay it or sell their children into slavery in order to pay it. Sometimes it's claimed that the jizya purchased an exemption for military service and that's what its function was. What could be more reasonable if people are not required to serve in the army that they compensate the state? Actually, Muslim jurists in past generations never described the jizya in that way. This has been made up in recent times. It's true Christians were forbidden to support and fight in the jihad, um, but they weren't in fact allowed to have any means of, of defending themselves. They were completely unable to fight, even on their own part. So it's very misleading. Sometimes it's claimed that the Dhimma Pact means pact of protection, so that what it meant was that the Christians were paying so that the Muslims would protect them from the enemies that might hurt the Christians. Uh, that is uh, quite mistaken. What Dhimma actually means is a pact of liability, and the protection is the protection of not being attacked by jihad. Um, this is like paying protection money to the mafia. They tell you that they'll protect you from others, but really, if you don't pay it, your bones will all be broken by the people that are protecting you. Sometimes it's said that the, that, that, that the key verses in the Quran are irrelevant uh, to this pact, but in fact, chapter 9, 29 is the key, and it's very much the basis in all the commentaries as well. Sometimes people say there's no connection between jihad, the war of conquest, and the Dhimma pact, but all the Islamic commentators and theologians, all the great ones, link Dhimma to the cessation of jihad, so that the condition of non-Muslims living under Islam is determined by the laws of jihad. Sometimes it's claimed that the Dhimmis entered into this status voluntarily. So it's said, for example, that the Egyptians surrendered willingly to the Islamic forces because the Byzantines were so much worse. Well, they did have a choice. The other choices were death or conversion to Islam. Sometimes it's said that the Dhimma was introduced much later and wasn't introduced by Muhammad, but in fact Muhammad introduced the Dhimma at Kaibar and he commanded his followers to apply the three choices. Sometimes it's claimed that Islamic societies were models of interfaith harmony and peaceful coexistence. That's why the Cordova Initiative was named uh, in New York because Cordova in Andalusia was obviously a place of wonderful harmony and peace between religions. That's completely untrue. It's actually driven by a belief in the perfection of the Sharia and the perfection of Islam, not by historical realities. Sometimes it's claimed that Islam granted equal rights to all its citizens and rejected discrimination of all kinds. Uh, in fact, Islam treats slaves, women and dhimmis as inferior before the law to free adult male Muslims. It's also very misleading to call dhimmis citizens. They were people who were given the right to live if they kept buying it each year. Sometimes it's said that Dhimmi regulations were rarely enforced and that it was only a theoretical status. But the historical accounts show, if anything, it was worse than the theory and the actual lived conditions were uh, very, very difficult. So there's lots of lies that are told and sometimes they're, they're told with a, a great deal of conviction and it's caused a, a lot of confusion. Let me give you an example 
Um, this is a, a, an internet article um, written by a Muslim called Refuting Allegations Against 929 Jizya Tax. It says that Muslims paid much higher taxes than the conquered dhimmis, while the dhimmis had all the benefits of living under Islamic rule. Moreover, the writer says that Christians and Jews were given equal rights and were allowed to build houses of worship. In fact, they were prohibited from doing so. The article says if the jizya is unfair on anyone, it would be the Muslims. Still, you never hear them complain. And the whole point of this is to paint Islam in, in as noble a light as possible. Uh, here's another example, uh, Abdul Hamid Siddiqui's translation of the Sahih Muslim, as a very notable Pakistani scholar. He said the word jizya is derived from the verb jaza, which means he rendered something as a satisfaction or compensation. This is a sort of compensation to the Muslim society on the part of unbelievers living in the protection of the Islamic State for not participating in military service and enjoying the covenant of protection, the dhimma. No fixed rate has been set by the Quran or the Holy Prophet from the text, but from all available ahadith, it's evident that it was much lower, considerably lower than the zakat to which Muslims were liable. It should also be borne in mind uh, that only such of non-Muslim citizens who, if they were Muslim, would be expected to serve in the armed forces of the state are liable to the payment of the jizya, provided they can easily afford it. Now, that last point is very interesting. What he's saying is that only adult men had to pay the tax. That is, they are the ones that would have had to serve as soldiers. In fact, the Muslim textbooks explain very clearly the reason why the adult men had to pay the tax is they are the ones who would be killed. In, they're the ones you can kill in jihad. So they're the ones whose heads need to be redeemed. So it's a complete lie. This is not to, to stop them from serving in the armed forces. This is so their heads aren't cut off. Um, but that's the, that's the problem. And sadly, some Christian leaders pick this up and run with it, and they, they promote it as truth. For example, Colin Chapman, an enormously influential English Anglican uh, leader, who, a, a, clergy, a member of the clergy, who has taught a lot on Islam, and his cross and crescent responding to the challenge Challenge of Islam is a best-selling book on, on Islam and widely used. He rehearses some of these ideas. He claims that dhimmis were protected, they were prohibited from military service, and they were not allowed to pay the Muslim taxes. This is exactly what he says. All non-Muslims living under Islamic rule paid a land tax, and Jews and Christians were treated as dhimmis, members of a protected community. And who wouldn't want to be protected? And paid, in addition, a poll tax, the jizya. They were not allowed to do military service, or to pay the Muslims' armed tax, the zakat. This fantasy is so entrenched that it really can come to a shock to some Muslims when they look at the original sources from the Middle Ages and they're confronted by their own, by their own sources. Uh, Subi al-Salih was the editor of the 1981 edition of Ibn al-Qayyim's detailed study of the laws of dhimmitude, and he criticizes the medieval author who's written this huge book on, on dhimmi. He calls him, he says that he... He is guilty of exaggeration in explanation of some topics due to the spirit of his time influenced by religious rigidity. He says that the author is astonishingly naive when he suggests that dhimmis were required to have neck seals or to wear bells while they were bathing. He said that the, the editor said there's no evidence of this practice and it's not in harmony with the spirit of Islam. In fact, it's the evidence for this practice is all through the medieval textbooks. It's described again and again. It's very well known and well documented, but the editor of the text just couldn't believe it as he was as he editing the text himself. He was also incredulous to discover uh, that Ibn al-Qayyim regarded the jizya as punitive and not some kind of uh, a generous gift or a payment for services rendered to the dhimmis. 
Al-Saleh says this. He said, we were expecting, in the context of Islamic goodness, that Ibn al-Qayyim would lean towards explaining jizya as a rent for living in the Dar al-Islam, or payment in return for protection. But contrary to our expectations, he supported the idea of categorizing jizya as a punitive measure. Doesn't he understand the facts written about our leaders, the works of their successors, of their successors the sayings of the jurists? Does he not believe that Khalid ibn al-Walid wrote to Sulubba ibn Nastuna and his people, if we protect you, you pay us jizya, otherwise we do not protect you. So he's referring to the history of the conquest of, uh, of Persia and uh, the Zoroastrians. And he said there was this, this, this verse that says that you pay us for this protection. Why didn't this author for the Middle Ages understand that the jizya was a payment for protection and not, uh, not, a, not, a, not a sort of a... Um, a, a punitive tax. I spent quite a bit of time looking through the source and chasing up the source of the, the letter to Saluba ibn Nastuna. And um, these, are, these actually come from Al-Tabari's history. And when you look at the actual text of that letter, what it says is you have a guarantee, it says to the non-Muslims, you have a guarantee of security and protection so that if we protect you, we're entitled to the jizya, but if not, um, then we're not entitled to it. So it doesn't actually say that you're paying for protection, but rather it says that if we don't protect you, you don't have to pay the tax. In fact, um, uh, the, in other places it's explained very clearly that this payment is a payment to protect the heads of, uh, of the, uh, the non-Muslims. And uh, the protection is in fact protection uh, from, uh, from the Muslims. <clears throat> it's said in, uh, uh, in Al-Tabari that the the, the covenant was made on condition uh, that, uh, that they would be protected from other Muslims and other Muslims' attacks. So there's many such deceptions that apply. Um, it's quite amazing sometimes even what Western historians will say um, about these matters. Um, a good example was Bernard Lewis, who made a number of statements about the, the Dimmer system. He said, on the, on the whole, the Dimmer uh, worked uh, rather well. And uh, it uh, was uh, quite, uh, quite a good system. <laughs> um, but uh, he completely underestimates the significance uh, of, 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 the, of, the, of the theological content of the, of the Dhimma Pact. He said, the Dhimma on the whole, this is Bernard Lewis, worked quite well. The non-Muslims managed to thrive under Muslim rule and even to make a significant contribution to Islamic civilization. The restrictions were not onerous and were usually less severe in practice than in theory. He said, in Islamic society, hostility to the Jew, for example, is non-theological. It's not related to any specific Islamic doctrine, nor to any specific circumstances in Islamic sacred history. For Muslims, it's not part of the birth pangs of their religion. So Bernard Lewis, who wrote a whole book on the Jews under Islam, is sort of defending and protecting the system and saying it wasn't based on theology and the system worked rather well. In fact, uh, the things that he says are quite false. Islamic hostility to the Jews is very theological. It's based on many verses from the Quran, on the traditions of Muhammad. Many dogmas of Islamic theology uh, uh, affect Islam's bad treatment of the Jews. Um, in fact, even the 17 daily recitations of Al-Fatiha include a prayer that you would not be like those who are under God's wrath, which are the Jews. So every pious Muslim recites a prayer 17 times a day that they not be like the the, the, the Jews under God's wrath. So to say that Islamic hostility to the Jews is not theological is, is quite bizarre. So you have these defenders, really, or apologists for the Dhimmi system, even amongst historians. Sometimes the media will distort uh, the story. 
In 2007, when Hamas took control of Gaza, they silenced the bells of churches. And uh, Katya Adler, who was a, a BBC News reporter, describes quite a moving scene in a Christmas service in a Catholic church where they're not ringing the bells, but instead a nun is sitting in the corner with a tape recorder playing bells quite quietly. And she says, The crowd is belting out alleluias, and the call to prayer is sounding around the church, but inside a nervous young nun is adjusting the volume loud enough to peel through the church, but not to penetrate its walls, its walls at the risk of offending Muslims going by. Now, this is a classic Bimmer rule, that the bells of Christians are not allowed to be heard. They're forbidden to have bells, like like crosses on tops of churches. And, uh, but she says there's no evidence to suggest that the Hamas government here officially discriminates against Christians. And she thinks that these, the silencing of the bells is actually a sign of Christian tolerance because they're trying to protect the sensibilities of the local Muslims. So this is a sign that they are sensitive to Muslims. In fact, it's a sign that Hamas has taken control and that the Dhimma is, as they did, said, should come back in has been brought back in. So this is another manifestation of silence or denial where reporters, historians, Muslims and Christians themselves and other non-Muslims deny the reality of the Dhimma system. So it's concealed. Dhimmitude is concealed. But it's of great importance for the world today. It's as important for understanding Christian-Muslim relations as racism is for understanding slavery or sexism is for understanding gender relations. There's a taboo of silence over this subject. It's a spiritual taboo because the dhimmis themselves are bound into silence by their own covenant. Their dhimma pact requires and demands their silence. So this silence needs to be broken. And in a later session when we look at the, the prayers that are required to renounce the dhimma pact, part of them will include a renunciation of that silence and the determination to speak out and to speak the truth. I'd like to discuss, uh, as a final part of this lecture, uh, the problem of the dimitude of the West. Dimitude is a psychological characteristic that's imposed upon dimmies, and silence, collusion, denial are some of their features. But what we're seeing today is the attributes of, uh, of inferiority, self-enforced inferiority of gratitude and silencing are applying across the Western nations. And we're going to look at some examples of that now. And it's a, a very disturbing trend and significant and needs to be addressed. So the spiritual impact of Islam is affecting us. Um, let me uh, mention some examples where politicians in the West have praised Islam and expressed their own inferiority or the greatness of Islam. Uh, one example, for example, was uh, after 9-11, uh, George Bush came out fairly quickly to declare that Islam is a religion of peace. So he was praising Islam immediate after, immediately after a terrorist attack. When President Sarkozy of France uh, went to Saudi Arabia in 2008, he declared that Islam is one of the greatest and most beautiful civilizations the world has known. So he's taking on the dhimmi role of, of a praiser of Islam. Mary Robinson, former president of the Nation of Ireland and one of the most Christian societies in Europe traditionally, was the High Commissioner in the UN for Human Rights. And in 2002, she read a statement to a meeting of the Organization of the Islamic Conference Symposium on Human Rights in Islam held in Geneva. And uh, she said this about Islam, it's important to recognize the greatness of Islam, its civilizations and its immense contribution to the richness of the human experience, not only through profound belief in theology but also through the sciences, literature and art. 
No one can deny that at its core, Islam is entirely consonant in agreement with the principle of fundamental human rights, including human dignity, tolerance, solidarity and equality. Numerous passages from the Quran and the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad will testify to this. No one can deny from a historical perspective the revolutionary force that is Islam, which bestowed rights upon women and children long before similar recognition was afforded in other civilizations. And no one can deny the acceptance of the universality of human rights by Islamic states. So she manages simultaneously to denigrate herself. I mean, she owes her human rights as a woman to Islam and also to praise Islam. And notice also the silencing. No one can deny. No one can deny. If you disagree with me, shut up. And that kind of silencing theme is such a powerful dimmy characteristic. So she's uh, producing pure dimitude, really, in her statements. And someone might hear that and be shocked and say, why would you sh she say that? You need to understand the power of the idea of the dimmer, the themes of gratitude. We owe so much to Islam, the moral superiority of Islam, the silencing of dissent. Tony Blair declared in 2002 at a conference on Islam and Muslims in the world today that the voices of extremism that is in Islam are no more representative of Islam than the use in times gone by of torture to force conversions to Christianity represented the teachings of Christ. So he insults himself saying we Christians are torturers or have been in the past and says that you know Islam is, is pure and perfect. A recent example, a more recent example, was uh, uh, President Barack Obama speaking to the Turkish parliament in April 2009, and he expressed his gratitude to Islam for the way it shaped the United States. We will convey our deep appreciation for the Islamic faith, which has done so much over the centuries to shape the world, including in my own country. So she, he, he comments on the debt, he comments on the debt that his civilization owes to Islam. There are many other examples that uh, one could draw to. Uh, for example, the, the statement of the Archbishop of Canterbury in 2008 um, that uh, Sharia law should be, could be brought in to the UK. He said, it's not as if we're bringing in an alien or a rival system. So you have religious leaders in the West that are speaking up for and introducing Islam and many incidences that are quite uh, disturbing. For example, in the United States, uh, prayer in public schools is forbidden. It's well known that it's not, you're not allowed to pray in public schools. But in, in 2001, in the New York public system, Muslims asked for prayer rooms to be set apart during Ramadan, and the governor of the New York school system gave them prayer rooms. But then when Christians and Jews came to him and said, we would like prayer rooms as well for Christian and Jewish prayers, uh, he was quite annoyed and he withdrew permission to the Muslims rather than grant it to the Jews and the Christians. There's also been a concealment when there are violent events. For example, when Theo van Gogh, the descendant of the painter van Gogh, was killed and brutally killed in Holland for producing the film Fitna, a police statement was issued by Ellie Florax, and she said that the killer had probably been disguised as a Muslim. She had no evidence for that, but her first instinct to say, this is not, this is not Islam at all. Uh, we've also seen an example in, in, in the UK in 2007. Um, a, a program was, uh, was screened by Channel 4 called Undercover Mosque, which produced many video clips of Muslim preachers in Britain. And the preachers incited hatred and violence against women, Jews, homosexuals and non-Muslims. They incited killing and other forms of violence. But the Telegraph in the UK reported 
that the police and the Crown Prosecutor, when they began to look at this issue, instead of investigating the Muslim preachers, investigated the television station and laid charges against the television station for bringing these things to the attention of the public. That is what would happen in Egypt if someone made a complaint about Islamic incitement, that the complainant would be brought before the courts. But this is happening in the UK. Two Christians were arrested in the UK for handing out leaflets in Birmingham. And they were told by the policeman that this was a Muslim area and they were committing a hate crime by telling Muslims that they should follow Christ. Two, two English schoolboys in 2008 were given a class detention for refusing to, to bow and pray to Allah in a religious studies class. One of the parents complained to the Daily Mail. She said, what get, got me is that they were told they were being disrespectful. This is also this dynamic of dimmy, um, the dimmy mentality of self-imposed inferiority and gratitude also showed up in the Yale response to the common word letter. The common word between us and you was a letter addressed by 138 Muslim scholars to the Christians of the world. And 300 Christian leaders were invited to sign a response written by Yale theologians. The signatories included David Yongi Cho, Robert Shuler, Bill Hybels, Rick Warren and John Stott. And what was really striking about the letter is that it adopted a tone of grateful self-humiliation and self-guilt. So it says, for example, it is with humility and hope that we receive your generous letter. And it says the Muslim's letter is extraordinary and written in generosity. And the Christians say, we ask forgiveness of the all-merciful one and of the Muslim community throughout the world. There were no comparable expressions of humble gratitude or of guilt offered from the Muslim side, just from the Christians. No doubt the Christians believed they were, they were speaking from strength. They were invoking Christian virtues of humility and self-examination. But they didn't take into account the dynamics of dimitude and the possibility that these statements could have and would have been understood by the Muslims as a display of self-acknowledged inferiority. We need reciprocity and equality in our discussions with Muslims. And it's very disturbing that in the West today, the idea that Muslims are superior and non-Muslims are inferior is coming to dominate our dialogue and our discourse. And even political and, and religious leaders who should know better are speaking as acting as if they were living in Egypt or Saudi Arabia and not in free, independent countries.